The education team for Jackson Family Wines proudly brings you these podcasts for your listening enjoyment. Hello, everyone. This is Barry Dodds, the Fremont Abbey Winery Historian and Ambassador, and I'm very fortunate to have with me today our winemaker emeritus and winemaker at Fremont Abbey for 42 Harvests, uh, Ted Edwards. Welcome, Ted. It's good to see you. Hi there, Barry. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. All right. So 43 Harvests, and as you look back, I mean, that's four decades working in your fifth um, what were the standout vintages for you? Yeah, that's always a difficult question. Uh, you know, there, there's certain vintages, you know, in some ways I, I remember the bad ones, <laughs> the ones that are most challenging, but, um, but we always try to, try to do the best that we can and, and we do um, successfully. Um, but some, you know, I will say like the 1995 vintage, um, for some reason, it has all the stars lined up on that. It was um, excellent right out the gate, and uh, it's had longevity. In fact, uh, we shared some of that last night, and it was tasting exceptional. So uh, very pleased with that vintage. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, for anybody that um, is looking to lay down wines, um, I think anything in the you know the two thousands. Um, are are exceptional and will age uh, really really well, and the, I mean that is the calling card of the Fremont Abbey Cabernet, is uh, it will last. How are these wines built so that that's always the case? I mean, one of the most impressive things to me, the incredible balance of these older wines, this sixties Ford, they were all just phenomenally well balanced. You know, and I I think that's the the key. You know, in the you know, early 70s, people used to think that, oh, you got to pack it with a lot of tan and a lot of acid for it to age. And I think that was a mistake because you see some of those wines uh, later on, uh, they've lost their fruit, but they still have too much tannin. Um, so I always took that home uh, in my own winemaking uh, that you need to bottle uh, with balance. The wine needs to be in balance at the time of bottling. Um, sig- significant structure, uh, backbone, significant uh, color, uh, flavor, and, uh, and balance, and it'll age beautifully. Um, that's been our experience. And how, how do you achieve that balance prior to, uh, to bottling? Is it mostly vineyard work, or is it uh, after production? It'd be a combination um, really, you know, so much work goes into the vineyard because that's where you're developing the color and the flavor. And that, um, you know, is um, predicated on, you know, your, your clones, um, your water regime, your um, trellising system uh, to help develop the color and flavor. Uh, and then you bring it into the winery. Uh, and then it's a balancing act of, um, you know, doing the, the pump overs. Uh, where, you know, you're not trying to beat up the, the skins. You're just trying to uh, get the, the color and flavor out of the skins um, and then pressing off when, when you have uh, based on taste and based on balance and dryness and so forth. Um, so that's one of the key uh, finishing components. Uh, and in general, we try to achieve that so that um, 
later, you know, so then we age for two years in, in barrels. That's all also a maturing um, time, maturing of the tannins. Um, but we don't want to be over over um, abundant in tannin extraction because we want it to be um, something that we can put together after the barrel aging without having to fine, you know. So in other words, without having to use egg white or go in with anything um, to take tannin out. We would rather um, have it all um, put together, um, you know, after barrel aging so that we uh, basically can do the blend and, and then get it in the bottle. In Napa, early on at Fremark Abbey, they figured out that they didn't need to follow the Bordeaux recipe, so to speak. It didn't. We didn't have to grow a lot of Merlot over here just in case Cabernet didn't ripen. So there was somewhat of a luxury in winemaking in Napa that I, I don't think uh, we appreciate as much, or maybe we just don't uh, pay service to it, uh, is that we have incredible climates we have to restrain ourselves. Is that, how do you go about restraining? Well, you know, it is true. I mean, the Napa Valley is a garden of Eden. You can grow anything here. Um, and it has turned out that it's evolved over the past uh, 50, 60 years that, um, well, and since prohibition, really, that we have um, focused uh, in, in grapevines. And uh, in, in today's world, when you drive through the Napa Valley, you will see an abundance of, of this carpet of, of grapevines. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, and we do, I mean, to, you know, get back to your, your blending thing, you know, and you said, uh, you know, I mean, everything's a blend because you put things into barrels and then when you pull it out, you're blending all those little tiny 60-gallon lots together. Um, and that's one of the first parts of our selection is we do barrel tastings. We decide what's going to go into what products. And um, But I, I'm one that really does like blends. Um, I think it adds some complexity um, to the wine. The, the um, I love using Merlot. Um, I, I love using all the five Bordeaux varieties, really. Um, they each have... Uh, bring something to the table. Um, you know, the Cabernet Sauvignon uh, is um, typically a little bit more uh, uh, herbal with some black, you know, current kind of tones. Merlot, um, you know, is just a little bit softer, a little bit more restrained, and um, has some different nuances that will bring to the table. And you know, and then we, I love Petit Verdot, uh, lots of color, um, lower tannin, uh, and actually some kind of nutty coffee kind of notes to it. Um, Malbec, lots of color, um, not too much tannin, and, and uh, dark cherry, fruity uh, components. Cab Franc, a little bit more floral. Um, so each one of these things uh, we like to experiment with uh, to see. And we make up uh, what we call bins trials, where we're actually putting a, a blend together uh, and we'll make some different options and see what direction we like to go. And then once we conclude uh, uh, what, what we want that blend to look like, then we take that formulation and go to the seller and uh, ramp up the numbers to where you're actually um, you know, putting, putting all the lots together. Um, into um, like a single tank, if you will, um, to make the blend. Has blending changed 
in the years that you've been making wine? <clears throat> 43 well, uh, years? Well, the, <laughs> no. I, actually, I think blending is one, is a concept that um, is solid. It, it's always the same. Now, the technology as to, you know, how you pump wine around or if you filter it, you know, or, or what, that, that has changed um, you know, dramatically, we have some really good uh, equipment nowadays that is very gentle with the wine. Um, you know, so that, you know, everything is uh, in the modern day world um, has really improved in, in the past 40 years, for sure. And, and in that time, of course, in 2006, you were working on a harvest, middle of harvest, uh, mid-September. Mid, uh, and uh, next thing you know, a guy by the name of Jess Jackson shows up at Fremark Abbey and says, Hey, uh, how you doing, Ted? Tell me about that first uh, encounter with, with Jess. Okay, yeah, it was 2006 that, um, you know, we, we, I didn't know this uh, necessarily. Uh, all of a sudden... Um, I get a call from Randy Ullum, uh, and he wants to visit uh, and taste some wines here. And uh, uh, he came with Chris Johnson, um, Chuck Shea, and we walked through the cellar and tasted some tanks. And I realized I was introduced to them that they were from the Jackson family enterprise. And so at that point, I knew that um, perhaps the Jackson family might be interested in in purchasing um, Fremark. And, you know, it, it was right getting into, into harvest. And, and, um, and so we were all staffed up. We had all our equipment here. Um, we were ready to go. And uh, we had the green light to do that. Um, and then they were, you know, the Jackson family were doing their uh, due diligence and um, with the purchase and stuff. And it's interesting because I went through uh, the harvest and, it, and I, th I don't think it was several weeks later that I got a call uh, that just wants to meet you. And uh, it was on a Friday. And so I drove up to the Redwoods, which was his office up in Alexander Valley and, um, and met Jess. And, and it was really great, um, you know, uh, great, great. Uh, I, I was very impressed, very nice. And, you know, he was kind of like because he's meeting me for the first time. And he's, you know, we sat down at a table kind of like this. And he says, well, t you know, just tell me about yourself. Where are you from? You know, <laughs> it was a full on interview. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we hit it off. Um, I liked him. He liked me. And, um, you know, we both like to work hard. So uh, it, it worked out well. And 16 years later, here I am. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's Time gone. Flies. <laughs> it's gone by way too fast. You know, you know, in fact, uh, I'm looking for somebody that. Uh, can give me some advice on how to slow time down. <laughs> that would be something we would all love to have. Yeah. Um, so Jess, Jess comes in, and uh, what was, I mean, what were the messages? Keep doing what you're doing or change um, up what you're doing? Yeah, in, in general, they um, he loved Fremark Abbey. He, in fact, it was an icon for him as far as quality goes in the Napa Valley. Um, 
but he wanted uh, me to uh, take advantage of what they could offer me uh, at, at his Oakville facility. So um, because Freemark was very old, very old tanks, um, very labor intensive uh, to make wine here at Freemark. Um, so Jess put in a bunch of small tanks uh, down at the Oakville facility. Um, small tanks being uh, five ton, uh, eight ton, 10 ton, um, good sized tanks for Freemark to, because we always like to pick in uh, batches, um, you know, and, uh, um, and bring it in and really um, spend time with the fermentation, you know, making our decisions and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it was a new day, you know, and the other thing too here, um, it comes to mind when we were doing wine here, we really didn't have enough tank space to be able to like do a cold soak before the fermentation or extended maceration after the primary fermentation. Uh, we had to move our fruit here, um, turn the tanks maybe three times, three and a half times to be able to get our whole crop through. Um, so it was a new day that we had all of these tanks. We were tank rich uh, and we could do anything we wanted, spend as much time with the fermentation. We could do 45 days with that fermentation if we wanted to. It, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a marvelous experience to have that flexibility. Um, anyway, that was, that was one of the first eye-openers for me. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, too, is uh, Jess wanted me to start experimenting with uh, some of his vineyards. He had vineyards here in the Napa Valley. Uh, so I started walking those vineyards and sourcing some fruit uh, for Freemark. Um, he had leases uh, and he had contracts with some other vineyards. Um, again, all within the Napa Valley. Uh, you know, and prior to that, we were entirely Rutherford. And Rutherford's not bad. <laughs> Rutherford's good stuff. Um, but this was, um, this kind of expanded our horizons um, quite a bit. And uh, I love walking vineyards and looking at the soil and looking at the, um, uh, the topography, the microclimate, um, and just seeing what uh, kind of projecting what kind of wine we could make out of this. And then, again, getting back to blending, uh, you do this. And you, we keep it in batches. We age it in barrels and batches. And we see the, the flavors, the nuances that came from a specific site. And we look at that, well, how is that going to go into the blend? How is that going to enhance uh, the blend? And in general, like, um, it is. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. You know, it's like our Napa Valley Cab, for instance. It's a blend uh, from all over the valley, uh, from the northern uh, vineyard up in Calistoga, um, all the way down to uh, the Coombsville area, uh, it's, um, east of Napa. Um, you know, again, putting in some Spring Mountain, some Hal Mountain, some St. Helena. I mean, these are all AVAs in the Napa Valley. Um, Rutherford, certainly. Um, Oakville, um, Yaunt, Yauntville, um, AVA. And <clears throat> all of these different areas have different soils. They have different climates. And they will create different flavors in the wine, uh, which is 
um, you know, from a winemaking perspective, it's just, it's wonderful. And so I felt like a kid in a candy store, um, for sure. And that's been the way, it, that is the way it's been for the past 16 years. Yeah, and I, I can actually remember you saying exactly that. Like a kid in a candy store. Yeah. Got a completely new sandbox to play in. Um, and it kind of, it kind of sounds... Jess sounds exactly opposite to what the reputation was. Uh-huh. You know, Jess is going to come in, he's going to expand your uh, production to 100,000 cases instantly. You're going to go from uh, the 14th bonded winery in Napa Valley to uh, uh, a super producer. And yeah. the exact opposite happens. Yeah, no, he, he, he and Barbara uh, both emphasized to me mm-hmm. that they didn't want to change anything. I mean, they just wanted me to be able to have the opportunities <clears throat> to make the wines that um, are uh, that Fremark is known for, and and basically um, keep it the same size. Jess loved history, and he loved the history um, uh, about you know Fremark Abbey and where we've been, and um, so it was apparent to me where we're where we're going is um, pretty much just to to enhance. Um, the quality, enhance the flavor, um, be able to uh, bottle wines with less um, processing. Um, you know, so we're we're getting more and more flavor into the the bottle. Um, so you know, it was just a win-win. Uh, I think for everybody uh, involved. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, the Spring Mountain Vineyard. So it was pretty much uh, when Jackson family came in, like you said, we had ex- access to some other excellent vineyards. I mean, you've been working with Boucher and Sycamore and uh, the right. former Fremark Abbey number one Cabernet Vineyard, which is now called the Redbond Ranch. Um, so when you step into Spring Mountain, that wasn't completely new, right? Because you had worked with... Well, yeah, Where no, Chuck we Harpy had worked. Uh, well, we we in the had sixties up there. Yeah, we had, um, you know, contract with uh, Fritz Maytag at York Creek, and we were getting fruit off of York Creek um, that uh, we could use in our Napa Valley cab, uh, and um, then we had also that give us an opportunity to bottle something separate. A small little amount for our wine club that is, a, you know, a Spring Mountain Cabernet, um, which is kind of fun. It, mm-hmm. it gives our wine club uh, something um, different uh, in, you know, in their shipments and so forth. But originally we weren't, we, we, we Chuck wasn't farming Cabernet up there, right? It was Petit Syrah? Um, yeah, I think was it, it both? Um, Chuck wasn't farming it. Um, you know, uh, well, what's in, interesting to know, uh, Chuck's partner, Lori Wood, was the one that planted um, York Creek uh, for Fritz Maytag. And <clears throat> uh, they were doing mostly Cabernet, but then they also did Petit Sirah. And uh, going back to 1970, uh, they started bringing in Petit Sirah, uh to Fremark Abbey. And we made Petit Syrah. Uh, I think the last vintage was 1980 uh, during that run off of York Creek. And um, 
And we, we discontinued that. And I asked Chuck Carpy, our managing partner, why. And he said, well, it was <clears throat> taking up valuable tank space. And he wanted to specialize more in Cabernet and um, Chardonnay. At the time, there was a big uh, push for our Chardonnay and our, and our Cabernet coming off of the Paris uh, tasting. Mm-hmm. So that was the reasoning there. And But we, we found out that we had a following for Petit Raw. So Lori Wood planted Petit Raw on his vineyard in Rutherford. And uh, a few years later, then we started getting patisserie from Lori's uh, vineyard. The wood ranch. And so we, yeah. so we basically brought back patisserie. And that really helped. I mean, that was uh, two-purpose. It was, it was very nice. Um, patisserie. He also had some Zinfandel that we like to blend into the patisserie. Um, and then it also, so he put it on St. George Rootstock, which is a real... Um, uh, aggressive rootstock um, that uh, would make produce these long, long canes, long shoots, and then Lori could harvest those for his. Uh, his daughter had a wreath making um, company, and so they would make um, wreaths and animals and all kinds of things out of these uh, cane cane art. Yeah, no, I remember Sally's uh, wreaths. I used to work with Sally in a photographic darkroom years ago. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, amazing stuff. I mean, we're talking about uh, Hall of Fame people here in Napa Valley, the, the, yeah. the pioneers of Napa Valley, Chuck Carpy, Lori Wood, the viticulturalist. Um, tell me about those seven partners. I mean, you got in after long, fairly long after. I mean, they arrived uh, in uh, 76, well, 67 rather. 67, yeah. And uh, you came in in, in in 1980. So they'd been around for a while. They'd, est- they'd established a, a mission statement. Yeah. And I believe the mission statement was uh, make wines uh, that will rival the best in the world. And of course, I'm sure that they were uh, meaning France at the time. So how, did, how do you think that impacted I mean, they've got the ball rolling, right? And then you came on in, in 1980 and you have to just keep that going. That, to me, is one of the most amazing things about you, how you've managed your career at Fremark Abbey is to retain the legacy that started with them. Yeah. Well, um, you know, they really did have a, a drive, for, you know, we, well, and a thirst, I'll say. <laughs> they liked really good wine. And, um, and then they had these vineyards in Rutherford, uh, they had been selling their fruit, um, and they wanted to start making wine for themselves, uh, but not just any wine. They wanted to make um, extraordinarily uh, good wine, um, ultra-premium wine. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 it kind, of, kind of goes back to uh, Fremark Abbey, you know, and, and wine, making wine here uh, back to 1880, 1886, uh, and then it was, um, there's a story of history, some changes there with, with Fremark, but it was um, in 1939 that Charles Freeman and Mark Foster and Abby Ahern <clears throat> bought the winery, and, and this is coming out of Prohibition, when there was not a whole lot of wine being made in the Napa Valley. There was a lot of other crops, agronomic crops, livestock, and so forth. And they, um, they, kinda, they made a name for themselves um, making 
varietal wines, for one thing. That was a first for the Napa Valley. Um, and, and premium, they really uh, established a reputation for making premium wines. And, um, and it was uh, in 1955 that they closed their doors. I think Abby passed away. Um, and then so, as you say, 1967, Chuck Carpey um, and Lloyd Wood and, his, and their partners bought the winery to start bringing their fruit in here. And um, I asked Chuck one time, I said, well, you know, because Chuck, you know, he was third generation Napa Valley. Um, Carpey name was famous uh, in St. Helena, the, um, the, the athletic field in St. Helena. It's called Carpey Field. So I asked him, I said, well, why didn't you call it, um, you know, Carpey Winery or Carpey Vineyard or Carpey Cellars or something like that uh, and play off of his history? And he said, well, he knew the, the boys that were doing Fremark Abbey. And they had established a reputation, and he wanted to bounce off of that reputation. He wanted to keep that reputation for making premium varietal wines and and grow from there. So with that being said, they took on Brad Webb uh, as a partner. And Brad had um, been working at Hansel um, in the 50s. He had really established a reputation for um, super premium Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Uh, and so they brought him into the partnership um, as like the first winemaker, but also to establish the backbone of how we make wines. And, uh, and so Brad was a, a mentor to me when I came in 1980. He was very scientific um, and, and, and it actually was a good way for me to, to get started in, in making wine. Uh, from there, I could grow and, and learn more um, sensorially and more about the viticulture and stuff. So that's, that's where I am today is like, well, sure, there's a good science background, but um, we approach things uh, very much um, based upon our, our senses, our, our smell and, and taste and, um, and our, our um, experience of what it takes to develop the, the flavors and what we can do and, and so forth. So we've really grown a lot um, over the years. And, um, but the backbone uh, was there with, with um, Brad Webb. Uh, Lori Wood was our viticulturalist, um, very strong in terms of um, old world, really, um, <clears throat> grape growing. Uh, and, uh, and with that, um, but, you know, the interesting thing is Lori was innovative and very quick to try new things. And, uh, you know, most of it was, you know, in terms of new trellis systems, new clones. But I remember one time I walked out with him and I said, what's this stuff around the base of the vine? And it was magnets. <laughs> and Lori was trying uh, this thing that he had heard about that maybe putting magnets would increase the, the flow. Of, of water or nutrients and that kind of thing, uh, you know, and, and it was you know kind of kind of a wives tale. I mean, I don't really think there was such good. Um, yeah, it's good, not in the sustainability. Yeah, period. it was not good science there, but um, you know, Lori was always willing to try something new. Yeah, so you know that was, and it was Chuck and Lori really 
and, and Brad that were um, making the decisions in terms of winemaking uh, and and um, mentoring me as I came into uh, under their fault. Um, the rest of the partners were mostly um, silent investors, um, except for John Bryan. He uh, he planted the Sycamore Vineyard, and um, and so we started making Sycamore as a vineyard designate uh, with the 1984 vintage. So that was always um, something that I was a big part of. Again, you roll these names off like it's kind of fun. Part of my job is, you know, I talk about Christy Melton. I talk about Ted Edwards. And then we have to, because of the age of the winery, uh, we have to talk about the foundational elements because after Prohibition, uh, there was a void of Napa Valley wines in America. Um, But there was a huge influx of French wine in the 30s which kind of established a completely new palate or desire for for wine. For the first time, people are drinking white burgundy. They're drinking Chardonnay. We're not growing Chardonnay here. When did, how did that happen? How did we start growing Chardonnay in the 60s? Because it was kind of almost a response to the fact that if we were walking, walking into a, a restaurant or a wine shop, uh, we were going to have to convince them that a California Chardonnay could actually be a viable food wine, being that it's so much warmer in, in Napa Valley than it is in, in Burgundy. How did we go about those? Were you around for some of those Chardonnay plants? Uh, well, no. I mean, I think that was all before my time. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think what's interesting to note there is that the partners and um, were well-versed in terms of European wines. Uh, Brad certainly was. And uh, I think he was very influential that, and, um, that we, we needed to have Chardonnay. Uh, and you know, with his Pinot Noir experience, so they're familiar with, with Burgundies. And, and so they um, planted Chardonnay and they planted Pinot Noir in their Rutherford vineyards. Now, the Chardonnay did really well. Uh, initially, they called it Pinot Chardonnay. They didn't want to call it Burgundy because that's France. Yeah. Um, but they called it Pinot Chardonnay. That is so cool because there were no laws governing that at that time. So we no. chose the right path. Yeah. They they uh, called it um, Pinot Chardonnay. And then after a year or two, they changed that to just Chardonnay because Pinot Chardonnay, I guess, was confusing people out there. Um, and then they made a Pinot Noir. Um, they were not satisfied with with the Pinot Noir, and I, I think that was basically because Rutherford's a little bit on the warm side for Pinot Noir, but it's a great area for Chardonnay. I mean, really, it makes this really rich, big, appley, um, pineapple kind of flavors, uh, and, and the winery could do well with it. You know, then they also, you know, needed, I mean, they planted, uh, you know, Cabernet and Merlot, and that was uh, a part of their mix. Uh, and then what we've, what we've experienced over the past 40 years, and it's been true for the Napa Valley, and, and, and I think true for um, the, the wine consumer out there, is they've gravitated more toward uh, Bordeaux varieties coming from uh, the Napa Valley. And so over the years, starting with me in the 1980s, we started um, replanting. So when I came... All the vineyards were on AXR rootstock, which was starting to 
um, succumb to a new root louse um, called phylloxera. So we needed to go through and replant all of our vineyards in Rutherford. And that was a blessing. That was um, expensive, but it, uh, it really gave us the opportunity to pull out things that um, we would do better with Bordeaux varieties and, and make a better selection. So, for instance, we pulled out the Pinot Noir um, and we had Riesling. We did well with Riesling, but we pulled out the Riesling. We put in Bordeaux varieties and that was kind of an economic decision. But anyway, so but we were experiencing the demand uh, and, and Napa Valley was getting to be more and more um, a Bordeaux area. And, uh, and you started seeing more. Uh, I mean, everybody was experiencing this. And so we were really growing um, with all of our Bordeaux um, blends. And that's the way it has been. Um, you know, uh, keeping it, uh, I mean, you know, I say growing, but still, a, you know, what, what, what would you call it? It's a medium-sized winery, uh, small to medium, somewhere in there. Uh, what we could keep in balance uh, and putting through our winery. Um, so it's, it's been, you know, a great opportunity. You know, and I think um, and not only did we replant areas of the vineyards, uh, we also took advantage of new trellis systems, um, putting in drip irrigation, um, you know, new uh, solid state uh, sprinkler systems for frost protection. There was a lot of improvements that we did in the 80s. Uh, that brought on. And I was um, certainly a part of that. It yeah. added to my experience. And also in the 80s is where visiting wine country started to be, ramp up and become extremely popular. Uh, Bay Area people, people from all over the country who were uh, drinking uh, their favorite wines in Chicago and New York, Miami, etc. And uh, tourism had an impact as well on what wineries were going to produce because You've got all these folks showing up on your doorstep to taste wine, and um, they've already had all the regular driver wines that we have in the market, and so you had this advent of winery only. That had to be uh, a fun project because, I mean, obviously time-consuming as, as the big production wines, but now you're working in really small part, the 250K slots, the 300K slots. When did that start for Fremont? Because most of the other wineries started in the mid '80s. Yeah, you know, I think that started for Fremont um, in the '90s. We started a wine club um, to kind of uh, feed this interest, like you you say, people interested in uh, smaller lot stuff and uh, director consumer. Uh, so that's when we really started working on. Um, you know, bringing out little, um, you know, either a vineyard designate or, um, you know, different things um, that we could show. You know, it might be um, a um, specific AVA, like I, I mentioned, the Spring Mountain um, or, or Rutherford or, um, or St. Helena. We could do something that was uh, small scale. And, and provide it uh, to the, in, the folks that are interested, um, particularly uh, earmarked for the, our wine club. Yeah, and it was, I mean, it was also a way that you could emphasize to consumers that were still kind of learning about wine uh, how, 
important it is to have different vineyards because vineyard sites bring specific values to the wine. Um, and we're talking about Spring Mountain a little ago. One of my favorite recent stories in, uh, regarding uh, Spring Mountain was uh, when Fritz Maytag came to uh, the tasting room one day um, back in 2013, I believe it was. And he brought you a, a can of his uh, family popcorn kernels. <laughs> and uh, he brought with him a friend of his who was very quiet but it was a unique experience for me because Fritz Maytag, of course, is a huge name uh, in uh, well in beer, in uh, appliances, and in the Spring Mountain York Creek Vineyard. Yeah, and, and cheese. And cheese. Maytag and blue. Maytag blue cheese. Maytag blue, yeah. Pop, I mean, incredible popcorn. man. Yeah, no, he was quite an entrepreneur in his own right. Yeah, and we sat down with him. It was interesting to me only because I'd been wanting to meet Fritz Maytag forever. And then we get I get a call saying, hey, Fritz Maytag's here to see Ted. And like, you weren't here yet, so I called you up and you were on your way. And in the meantime, we uh, started chatting about uh, Petit Sarah and how the, and the beginnings of Petit Sarah because he was fully entrenched in the beginnings of Petit Sarah. And... Uh, it became ultimately one of the first wines that Christy Melton uh, put together was the 2013 bootleg. And part of that wine was the 13 Petit Syrah that you had farmed on, um, on Spring Mountain on the Maytag Vineyard. That was pretty incredible. That's when our Petit Syrah stopped was 2013. I think 12 was the last vintage. Uh-huh. And then 13, uh, the bootleg. Oh, and then that went into bootleg. Name went away and yeah. became its own brand. And uh, right. 94 points from Robert Parker. How well, much of that do you think is attributable to that vineyard? Yeah, well, I mean, I you know, I really think anything that a wine has to offer, you can attribute it to the vineyard uh, in general. Um, you know, winemakers were, you know, kind of technicians in a way. Um, chefs making the, the wine. Um, but we're only as good as, as our vineyard. You bring up something that I totally forgotten about, really. Um, we had been doing bootleg a lot earlier, and we had developed bootleg for our wine club. Mm-hmm. Um, as a little blend, the, the idea was uh, the cellar man knows what, be- what lots are best in the uh, barrel cellar, and so uh, we would bootleg out some of these uh, really good lots into a blend make up, you know, 200, 250 cases uh, for our wine club. And we, we called that bootleg. And uh, then, as you mentioned, um, that morphed into uh, its own brand. And Barbara Banke loved uh, the name uh, bootleg. Yes. And it had a lot of potential. And, you know, and in, and in today's world, it's being made um, a substantial amount of um, Merlot and Syrah and some different things uh, going to bootleg. It's, I think it's really quite a, a fun little thing that um, Gabe Valenzuela is um, the uh, winemaker for that now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the legacy is in very good hands uh, with Christy and Gabe and with yeah. you still as the emeritus. But I have been very impressed with how Christy has come on board. I mean, she's a fantastic personality. 
I think she's an incredible winemaker. She understands this legacy that she's fitting into. And that's, I think, the most encouraging thing for me about Christie's. Not only does she have incredible talents in the vineyard and the cellar, but she really oozes this Josephine presence to me. The first woman winemaker, head winemaker at Fremark Abbey since uh, the first in Josephine Tixon. Yeah, I, I tease her that she's channeling Josephine uh-huh. um, to get that energy. Um, she's great. I, you know, back when I uh, was, you know, uh, not that I'm old, but I was definitely getting older, and I knew that I needed to um, think about cutting back at some point. And and anytime you do a winemaker, um, you know, uh, you have two vintages in barrel and one vintage on the vine. Uh, and I thought, well, I needed somebody to come work with me for three years to really see how we make the wine, mm-hmm. um, learn about all of our vineyards. And so we brought Christy on board. So she worked with me for three years. Um, and then we uh, made her the winemaker, I think, with 2020, uh, the 2020 vintage, um, which was unfortunate because we had the fires that we couldn't use any of that material. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think where you're really going to start to see Christie's mark is with the 21 and 22. Um, and you will really start seeing um, some of her um, talent uh, show up in, in, with, the, in the wines. With, with the Bordeaux, but her first oh. project was the 2018 yeah, Chardonnay. For, that's, that's true. When, when, yeah, when... Uh, when we were actually doing... But some of us thought was the worst thing you could possibly do, add a little mallow uh-huh. to a wine. I can remember that distinctively. But then I was also reminded as I went through the production numbers over the years that we hadn't really grown Chardonnay as well as we could have or should have. We never took we never took what Raymond Oliver at the 1976 Judgment of Paris said about your about those wines, which was ah back to France. We never took advantage of our position. And I think you alluded to this in a conversation we had years ago where Chuck Carpy seemed to be, eh, Chardonnay, Chardonnay, we're only making that because people are drinking white burgundy. So we were making that wine with zero mallow so that we could match the acids of a white burgundy. And uh, with the cold climate vineyard accesses that we started having in 2006, this became an, a different, uh, a completely different wine because we could now afford the luxury of enriching the Chardonnay. We didn't immediately, like you suggested, we didn't even make wines for Wine Club until the 90s. So it was, uh, Fremark Abbey is very deliberate about decisions we make about our future. And I think part of that is because we have a legacy to preserve and to protect. Um, but Chardonnay changed with Christie. We still have a beautiful Chardonnay with high acid, but it now has a, just a little bit more of a richness to the wine that puts it more into the uh, into the modern uh, Chardonnay palette in America. Yeah, the, you know, um, the Brad Webb style was non-malolactic, and uh, over the years I had um, massaged that style. I mean, basically getting away from a lot of filtration and stuff like that, uh, and adding some barrel fermentation. I did that in the um, late 80s. Um, you know, with the Brad style was a lot of skin contact. Um, I stopped doing that in 1989. 
because uh, it would just give it too much tannin. Uh, and the 89 vintage, the skins didn't look too good. Um, so anyway, we, st- we started um, adding barrel fermentation to give it some more uh, um, depth, um, viscosity. And uh, then as things evolved uh, with the new ownership, um, Barbara um, particularly liked malolactic. And uh, so I got the word that um, Barbara would li- like to see us do some malolactic. And so when uh, Christy came on board, when I met Christy, um, I actually asked her, I said, well, would you um, take charge of the 2018 Chardonnay and let's um, start doing some malolactic? And, uh, and, and you're right that we could do this because we had vineyard um, that was in within um, the Jackson Family Enterprise down in Caneros with uh, higher acidities. There, that's where you practically need the malactic to help soften some of that uh, acidity and build up some complexity in the wine. So um, that was Christie's first assignment. And she did really, really well with it. Um, the 2018 was fantastic. Actually, each vintage, excuse me, each vintage she's done has just been fantastic, yes. Uh, yes. wonderful. We were pouring uh, at a few accounts uh, yesterday, uh, the 21 and last week in Palm Springs, the 21 Chardonnay. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And it's her fourth wine, fourth Chardonnay, beginning with 18. Yeah. Um, the amount of mallow has changed in those four vintages. Is that part of just leveling, uh, figuring out exactly you're going to introduce mallow, uh, where's your starting point, and then how do you adjust from there on before you sort of hit your mark? And is that mark always going to be determined by climate and the amount of residual mallow there is? Uh, you know, I think uh, each vintage is going to be different. And it's, and it's going to be looking at trying to achieve the flavors and balance. You don't want the wine to be, oh, my God, look, you know, smell that malolactic, that buttery, that, you know, all that kind of stuff. You don't want that. You want it to be perceived as this bright Chardonnay that is enhanced by malolactic. Um, and so how much malolactic you do or how much ends up in the blend is going to vary from year to year. And then Christy has been very good at um, that balancing act. I would say so. The wines are receiving uh, really incredible accolades yeah. routinely and uh, uh, every year. Every, so every vintage has been uh, scored well. Uh, the wines are being received incredibly, incredibly well. So Chardonnay is actually now, I think, a varietal for us. That is uh, as important as our Cabernet. And that's that's wonderful, you know, to hear um, that we've kind of gone full circle um, because it was that way in the late 70s, uh, really. You know, um, with the judgment of Paris uh, having a, a Chardonnay and a Cabernet in that competition do well uh, against um, French uh, wineries. And um, that kind of... Uh, catapulted Fremark Abbey to on the world stage for making both Chardonnay and Cabernet, mm-hmm. and that you know that was that traditional Brad Webb style of Chardonnay, um, and then the wine was very popular. Winery was very popular for that at that time, but then I think um, 
you know, uh, what uh, evolved uh, was this interest in these big California Chardonnays, um, real ripe, big um, alcohol, 100% malolactic, 100% new oak. Um, and uh, they became very, very popular. And for us, where, where we were experiencing growth was in our Bordeaux varieties, not so much Chardonnay. Chardonnay mm-hmm. was on the back burner. And so now um, it's more, like you say, it's, it's more, it can go toe-to-toe with, with our Cabernet in terms of popularity. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's a natural, right? Because Chardonnay's uh, grown ex- incredibly over the last few decades. And uh, but now we have a newcomer on the scene. I mean, Sauvignon Blanc has always been. Uh, it started for us in 2005 with a, what, a production about 250, 300 cases. Yeah. It's for the wine club only, and for the oysters that we were <clears throat> serving here at events. Um, Sauvignon Blanc has exploded. I have a huge question in my mind: Is that explosion due to the varietal itself? Is it due to the fact that the very popular New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs were really largely unavailable in quantity with the 21 vintage? Did that allow California Sauvignon Blancs to kind of uh, show up and say, hey, don't forget about us? <laughs> and um, how are we going to manage this demand? I mean, it, 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 we sold out within 30 days of the release of the, the uh, 2021 Sauvignon Blanc. You know, as far as why Sauvignon Blanc has gained popularity, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting phenomenon. Um, it is uh, nice that we do have a source. Uh, Freemark uh, actually owns a little vineyard just south of uh, the winery, uh, about 16 acres of, of Sauvignon Blanc that we're using all of that now for Freemark. Um, we used to sell some of it. And then we have another source down in Yontville, um, but we're looking for more sources so that we can enhance the numbers because that is a growing mm-hmm. um, varietal for us. And I know that it is near and dear to Christie's heart. Um, yes. You know, it's her one of her go-to wines. I, I, I see that, you know, when we go out and have lunch and stuff. <laughs> yes, Sauvignon Blanc. It should be anybody's go-to. I mean, yeah. we, we've all drunk lots of Sauvignon Blanc. Ours was phenomenal. And then 2016, we started making enough to get them to market. Yeah. And uh, it's something actually that in the tasting room, we'd, we would hear from uh, uh, wine shop owners and restaurants after they tasted the lineup in the tasting room. The question would be, why aren't, you, uh, why aren't we getting any Sauvignon Blanc in, into the market? The reality was we didn't have enough fruit to get it to market because it was all coming from our allocated space on the Wilson Ranch, correct? Well, uh, we were, I mean, just the initial Sauvignon Blanc was coming from Yachtville. Um, and our, our ranch was actually tied up in, in contracts. So we really had to get, take that over. Um, so we, we could start uh, adding it into for, for Freemark. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I think a lot of the marketing people thought, well, that, this is great because we're, uh, you know, a Bordeaux winery and, you know, Sauvignon Blanc is a Bordeaux wine. Yeah. Uh, that, that it just makes sense for us to do that. Mm-hmm. I've always loved the Sauvignon Blanc. I think the uh, the way you've uh, – uh, maybe I should just ask you this. Canopy management plays a huge role in the kind of Sauvignon Blanc characteristics <laughs> – 
uh, uh, you're going to be producing. How, how true is that? Yeah, no, that, and that's totally true with Sauvignon Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc is um, very vigorous. It produces a huge canopy. And uh, canopy, what I mean by is the, the, the shoots, the leaves, the branches. Um, you know, I mean, relatively like Chardonnay, which can be very small. Um, Sauvignon Blanc is like a jungle in a sense. And you have to control that uh, through your trellis system. And um, what we do is kind of like this uh, open trellis system where we take the canes, um, you know, kind of uh, open it up like a Y and try to get sunlight into the fruit zone. And we actually train the shoots so we get sunlight into the fruit zone. And that sunlight um, in during the growing season uh, enhances um, the flavors and, and softens the acidity and, um, and softens uh, the green uh, notes. The pyrazines um, is the, what you Yeah, the, pyr the pyrazines. So that we're really trying to accentuate uh, more of the fruit cocktail um, aroma, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the fruity component mm -hmm. of um, Sauvignon Blanc. All right, so we were just talking about uh, canopy and shoot positioning and Sauvignon Blanc, and we were starting to talk about how we're going to solve the riddle of uh, making more to uh, keep that price point uh, by the by the by the glass price point which is very attractive it's it's definitely the higher price point in the by the glass category but um, it's interesting to me what do you do you see merlot being impacted by the sauvignon blanc demand i mean we're not going to rip out cabernet right to graft over sauvignon no blanc. no and um, sauvignon blanc is is something that is great to grow along river, the rivers, you know, because it has a natural uh, resistance to like Pierce's disease. Um, so, the, you know, we're looking for areas where we can plant Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, and in fact, um, on our Calistoga ranch, uh, we are planting some Sauvignon Blanc. So we're, we're being aggressive in mm -hmm. terms of looking for new sources from other growers, as well as replanting uh, which will eventually uh, come into the winery and, and help us um, develop the numbers. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, being proactive and seeing this coming <clears throat> is uh, is what makes being part of this company so huge for us, I think, as well. we got to make a huge name. We are making a huge name for our own Sauvignon Blanc uh, because it's very, very much a personality Sauvignon Blanc, or it's, it's all characteristics that you can find in Sauvignon Blanc, you'll find in a Fremont Abbey Sauvignon Blanc. The comparison being the pyrazine heavy Sauvignon Blancs are all going to retain all of that pyrazines. And so you're going to get a lot of cat pee and grapefruit, very loud. And the, the problem isn't that those are bad aromas, it's just that, and, and flavors, it's just that they really are very loud and reduce any other voices to zero. So you can't really hear them. When you manage that canopy, and stop me and tell me if I'm wrong yeah. here, but when you do manage the canopy, you're able to actually tone the pyrazines down to where 
those very voices of big grapefruit and cat pea and gooseberry actually are more at the same level of white peach and the, some of the citrus notes that you find in Sauvignon Blanc as well and the other maddocks. The, uh, yeah, I think that's that's true. I mean, that, that certainly shows you're saying canopy management is so important for that. And I think also the maturity is key. You know, you want to... Um, you know, pick in that range of 22.5 uh, degrees bricks. If you pick down in 21s, uh, which a lot of people do, you're going to get more of the pyrazines, uh, more tartness. You can get it up to 22.5 to 23 degrees bricks. You're going to get more of the white peach mm-hmm. um, fruit component. Um, and something I think personally is much more desirable. When I when I was started making the Semillon Blanc, that was kind of my target. And I think that um, Christy is uh, on board with that as well. All right. That's fantastic to hear. And uh, it's been good talking to you, Ted. I think we're going to wrap it up with the white wines over here. And uh, this is going to be a series of conversations that uh, we're going to have over the course of the next few months uh, with Ted. And uh, we'll also be having some conversations with Christy Melton. And some of the uh, figures that have been around Fremark Abbey for uh, a very long time who have retired since, but who have incredible stories to tell. Uh, But thank you for sitting down with me, man. Okay, it's been, it's been my pleasure, Barry. Until next time, this is Barry Dodd signing off.